If you look at the bulletin, you'll see that we want to look at a few passages. The main passage is James chapter 2 for the scripture reading. But to prepare for what we're going to read in James chapter 2, just a few other passages to get us introduced to what we'll look at this evening. Genesis 15 verse 6 is the first portion of scripture we read. Genesis 15, verse 6. This is where the Lord God comes to Abraham and encourages him with uh, promises. And we read in Genesis 15, verse 6, And he, Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Then a few pages over, a few chapters over, Genesis 22, verse 1. This is about 35 years later. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, or tested, tried Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here I am. And that's where God calls Abraham to offer up Isaac, his only son, And then Romans 4, we'll read a few more verses from Romans 4, Romans 4, 1 through 6, this is where the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, in verse 3, let's read Romans 4, 1 through 6, what shall we say then, that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was, account, it was counted unto him for righteousness. We just read that, Genesis 15, verse 6. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you work, then you're owed something. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness, the happiness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. And we'll... Stop our reading there. And now we turn for our main portion of the scripture reading to James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. So Paul says, writes, we are justified by faith apart from works. And now James 2, we start at verse 14. The text is verses 21 through 26, but we'll start at verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith... And have not works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, 
Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith, my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And now beginning the text. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers, and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our last sermon in this series on James, which was about a month and a half ago, I introduced that sermon by pointing out three things about this whole section of the letter from verses 14 through 26. And as part of the introduction tonight, I want to repeat those three things that I mentioned last time in the introduction. First of all, this passage, James 2, verses 14 through 26, really captures the central theme of the letter of James as a whole. With this whole section, we have really the the crux of the matter, the main message James is emphasizing in the whole letter. Faith without works is dead. James is writing here to saints who are from a Jewish background. And one of the things James evidently sees in these converts is a tendency to antinomianism, a tendency to put away the law of God. As Jews, many of them were probably very legalistic. But now, as converted Christians, it appears that the pendulum has now swung too far in the other direction, and some of the people are struggling with living a loose lifestyle and and dead orthodoxy. So that they say they have faith, They identify as Christians in public, but their lives are characterized by ungodliness and and worldliness. And with this text, James gets right to the heart of the matter. You can't have true faith without also having the fruits of faith, namely works. Faith without works is dead faith. Second of all, this passage from verse 14 to the end of the chapter is a very sobering passage. It's very sobering to think that a person says he has faith, he says he's a believer, and yet he's still lost in his sin and on his way to hell. And yet that's a reality. There are those who believe. They say they believe, and in a certain sense they do believe. Last time we used the figure of Simon the sorcerer. But their faith is really no different than the faith of the devils. That's a sobering thought. 
And then third of all, this passage from verse 14 to the end of the chapter is also a very pastoral passage. That's the tone of the whole book of James, and that's the tone here in the crux of the letter. letter. Elder James, just like any faithful elder or pastor, would want to uh, warn the sheep under his care about the reality of non-saving faith, so Elder James has that desire as well. This passage is a passage full of pastoral concern and love. Those three things. Well, in our last sermon, we looked at the first half of this section, verses 14 through 20, and we especially concentrated on what dead faith is. That was the theme. We looked at a few of the characteristics of dead faith. We looked at what dead faith cannot do. It cannot save. And then we also applied that to ourselves and our own personal lives. This time... As we continue James' progression of thought, we shift our focus, and now we concentrate on what living faith is. Last time, dead faith. This evening, living faith. And how living faith is a faith that necessarily and inevitably brings forth the fruit of good works. So our theme this evening is living faith, and we look at three things. First, the striking language that James uses. Second, the example of Abraham. And third, the example of Rahab. And, and we're going to have the passage, we're going to need to have the passage before us. We're going to need to look at some of this language very carefully. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? When she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. That is striking language. There might even be young people here and young adults reading this passage in church and and saying, Hold on. Wait a minute. How can this language even be in the Bible? What's going on here? Well, to begin with our explanation, we need to go, we're going to go first to the Apostle Paul because Paul is very clear and thorough on the doctrine of justification, and then we're going to use what Paul says to help us understand James and and to help us understand how to understand James. There's a few passages we could go to, but Romans chapter 4 is a good passage to go to. We we read a few verses from Romans chapter 4. It really even starts in Romans chapter 3. Paul is writing about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, In chapter 3, verse 28, Paul makes it very explicit. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Faith without works. And then in Romans 4, Paul actually takes the specific example of Abraham and says this is exactly how it was with Abraham. What shall we then say that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before men. For what saith the scripture? Genesis 15, verse 6, we read it. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What that passage is clearly teaching us is that when it comes to the specific case of Abraham, Abraham, our spiritual father, Abraham was not justified by works. 
Abraham was justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. In verse 6, the example of David is given, and the same truth is reiterated. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes or counts or charges righteousness to his legal account without any of that man's works. So, what is the Apostle Paul talking about here? As the Catechism students know, the word justification means to be declared righteous. And so here in Romans 3 and Romans 4, the word justified is referring to that legal act of being declared righteous. Being declared righteous by the judge in the courtroom, who is God. So that God the judge declares us officially, legally, To be righteous, that is to be in perfect harmony with his law, so that we match up to the requirements of the law, so that in the sight of the judge, it is just as if we have kept all his commandments and broken none of them. We are innocent, declared innocent. Yes, we are still sinners. We sin every day. That's our reality as to our actual condition as we walk through this world. But before the law... Before the courtroom of the great judge, we are declared innocent. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are not legally held against us. And here in these passages, what Paul emphasizes is that we are justified, declared righteous, by faith alone, without any works. And what that means is that our own works, our own obedience in this life, does not contribute to our righteous standing before God. We are justified by faith alone. And why are we justified by faith? Why is faith better than works? Because faith lays hold on Jesus Christ. Because faith is the instrument whereby we are united to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He is our righteousness. He is the one who kept God's law perfectly. And through faith, we have a share in Him. And it's exclusively on the basis of who he is and what he has done, which becomes our possession through faith, that we are justified. So the point of Paul is this, not by works. That's Paul's concern. You're not accepting. He's writing to Gentiles predominantly. He's telling these Gentiles, you're not accepted in the sight of the judge because of the works you do. No, but rather you're accepted in the sight of the judge because by an act of unspeakable grace, God, the maker, has transferred to your legal record. He has imputed to you the perfect righteousness of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So that when God looks at you, he sees you as if you have kept his law as perfectly as Jesus did. That's Paul. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Well, now, when we turn to the striking language in James chapter 2, there's a few things that we need to appreciate in order to understand this. First, we need to appreciate that James has a different pastoral concern than the Apostle Paul. James is not focused on explaining how a person is legally declared righteous before God. But James' concern in this letter is the issue of antinomianism. James is concerned that there are people who say that they have faith, they are members of the church, but they don't care about living a holy life according to all the commandments of God. And the result of that different pastoral concern 
is that James uses the word justification in a different sense than the normal sense that Paul uses. What James is focused on is how a believer will demonstrate his faith. How the believer will give evidence of his faith and and give proof of his free justification by faith alone. One who has been justified by faith alone will show this justification. It will reveal itself in his life so that others will see it, so that he himself will see it, so that God will see it. He will show his justification by his works. Not he will obtain his justification by his works. No, but the justification which he has by faith, the justification that he enjoys hearing God tell him, your sins are forgiven, you're righteous in my sight, that justification which he enjoys will come to manifestation in his life, in a life of good works. If a person has true faith, a faith by which he is justified before God, that faith will show itself, that faith must show itself in the fruits of faith. Namely, the fruit of good works. Right? Jesus says, he teaches the same thing in Luke chapter 7. Right? The, 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 the woman who comes into the house of Simon the Pharisee and she starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Right? Jesus says to Simon the Pharisee, this woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. And there are those who don't love much because they haven't been forgiven much. Right? If you know the reality of forgiveness, it shows itself in a life of love. That's, That's all we're saying here. So James is simply not speaking of justification in the same sense as Paul speaks of it in Romans or in Galatians. To put it differently, James is describing an entirely different aspect of justification from what Paul describes. These are two different contexts. That, first of all. And then second, to add to this, we need to appreciate what James actually says here in James chapter 2, and especially in verse 23. James 2, verse 23. Let's look at this. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now, let me first briefly explain the language there. We've come across that language a few times, and it might be needed to explain it. Verse 23, when it says, it was imputed unto him for righteousness, that's not saying that Abraham's faith itself was Abraham's righteousness before God. That might be what it sounds like when you first read it, right? Abraham believed God and it... His believing was imputed to him for righteousness, but that's not the idea. The idea is this. The idea is not that Abraham was justified on the basis of his faith, as if his faith was his righteousness before God. But the idea is this. Abraham's faith was a faith that looked to Jesus. The object of his faith was Jesus. Abraham's faith was a faith that embraced the promises And at the heart of the promises is Jesus. He is the promise. Jesus is the object of Abraham's faith. And in that sense, Abraham's faith was imputed to him for righteousness because the object of his faith was Jesus. In other words, we could read it, Jesus' righteousness was imputed to Abraham 
Abraham's faith was a faith that, that embraced Jesus, and through that faith, the righteousness of Jesus was imputed to him, charged to his legal record, so that through faith, Abraham knew that having Jesus, having Jesus through faith, he had a righteous standing before God, and his sins were forgiven. That, first of all, the language. But then second, we need to see how verse 23 fits into this whole passage. And here we need to pay close attention. Go back to verse 21 for a moment, please. Notice verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now a question for us. What chapter in Genesis records that event of Abraham offering up Isaac? Well, Genesis chapter 22. We saw that. Now jump down to verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Here the question is, where does that passage appear in the book of Genesis? Well, it appears in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 6, which is seven chapters before Genesis 22, and about 30 to 35 years before the events of Genesis chapter 22. And the point is simply this. It was already back in Genesis 15 that Abraham was justified by faith. That's what James is saying here. In Genesis 15, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, your children shall be as the sand by the seashore for multitude. Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That was the promise of Christ. And Abraham believed the promise. Abraham believed that Jesus would come from his loins. Abraham believed in Jesus, Genesis 15. And he was justified. He knew he was righteous in God's eyes because he looked to Jesus. He saw Jesus' day and what Jesus would do for him on the cross. That's Genesis 15, when he was 75 years old. So first of all, James agrees with Paul. Abraham is justified by faith. But now what James does in verse 23 is this. He's saying, look, Abraham believed all the way back in Genesis 15 when he was around 75 years old. But now look, 30, 35 years later, when God calls him to offer up his only son, Isaac, Abraham does it. He obeys. And the point is, his works, his obedience... His good works were the witness, the evidence, the demonstration of the justifying faith he already had in Genesis 15. And so when James writes at the beginning of verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, that doesn't have the idea that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. That's how we maybe naturally read those words, and the scripture was fulfilled. But the idea, that's not the idea. The idea is... That which was said about Abraham already back in Genesis 15, that scripture that he believed, that he was justified by faith, that which was true of Abraham back in Genesis 15 was fulfilled, meaning this, it was brought to its demonstration, it was brought to expression and realization, brought to its fulfillment, we could even say its maturity, its inevitable end. When Abraham offered up Isaac, 
His work, his good work of offering up Isaac was the demonstration, the evidence that the faith that he had in Jesus Christ was a true, living, justifying faith. And it was not a dead faith. Abraham's true faith and Abraham's justification by faith was demonstrated by his works. Again, Abraham's works, his good work of offering up Isaac on the altar was a witness to him. A witness to those around him. Even to God, his friend. That his faith was a living faith. A true faith. By which he was justified before God. So what James writes in James 2 verse 23 does not contradict Paul. But it's in perfect harmony with Paul. It's saying the exact same thing. And then it's adding another layer to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. What James is saying when he uses that word justified is this. Abraham was proved to be truly a believer, truly a justified child child of God by the works that flowed from his life. All right, now there's more language to understand. That's really the striking language. Let's now actually get into the example of Abraham and see what James does with that example. And you know the history. Here is Abraham Right? Genesis 22. Here is Abraham, one who is already justified before God. He believes in Jesus Christ. He's counted righteous in God's sight. And God now comes to him in Genesis 22, and God tries him. He tests Abraham's faith. Not to see if Abraham's faith would fail, but exactly so that Abraham's faith might be put on display. And God says, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And God says, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now let's pause for a moment and appreciate what God is telling Abraham to do. Not only is this Abraham's boy, right, his precious little boy, his only child, really. But this is the one through whom God is going to fulfill his promises. God made Abraham a promise. God has been telling Abraham, Abraham, your your seed shall be as the sand by the seashore, innumerable. I'm going to make of you a great nation, Abraham, and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's the promise of Christ. That's the promise of salvation. And Abraham has been trusting in that promise for about 35 years by this point. And now it's obvious that the only way that that promise will be fulfilled is through this little boy, Isaac. Sarah is already 100, 105 years old. Abraham is about 110, 115 years old. Isaac has to be the one through whom God will fulfill these promises. There is no other way. And now God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, take that child to Mount Moriah and kill him. And what is going through Abraham's mind? Well, I think what would be going through my mind is this. What? You want me to do what? What about your promises, Lord? What about, the whole, what about this whole issue of child sacrifice? How does any of this make sense? I thought I knew who God was. Is God changing his mind? Is God forgetting his promises? 
Does God want to take salvation away from me and break his promises? God says, take your only son and offer him as a sacrifice. What about your faithfulness, Lord? What about our friendship? Am I not the friend of God? What about the promises to your church? What about your own reputation, God? But what does Abraham do? That's what I maybe would have done. But what does Abraham do? Does he argue with God? No. But this is the demonstration of Abraham's faith. Here is the evidence of Abraham's faith. He gets up early in the morning. He saddles his ass. He takes two young men with him. He cuts the wood for the burnt offering. He takes Isaac and he goes to the place which God told him of. Then after three days' journey, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the place afar off. And he says to the young men, stay here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and catch this, and come again to you. And there you see Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God. He knew God was his friend. He knew God would make provision somehow for the promise. And he takes Isaac, he climbs up the mountain, he binds up his only son on the altar, he takes out his knife, and he is ready to slay Isaac. And we read from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, that in his heart, Abraham had already committed the deed. He was already there, mentally, spiritually, however you want to say it. He was already committed to the act. He offered up Isaac. He did it, and he did it judging that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And God says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. And God says, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son thine only son from me. That was Abraham being justified, being vindicated, being shown to be a true believer indeed by his works. Abraham's faith and his justification was proved, was demonstrated by his works. Abraham could see in his own life And the world could see too, from the way he was living, what actually lived in his heart. His faith was not just an intellectual assent to the truth. His faith was not just an outward, cold confession. No, his faith was a true, living faith. He knew God. He trusted God. He knew who he was in Jesus Christ. He knew that God's promises to him were yea and amen in Jesus Christ. And what he believed was shown in the way he behaved. This is easily shown by just asking the question, what if Abraham's faith was a dead faith? What would happen then? Would would he have done what he did? Would he have offered up his only son Isaac? No. He would have pivoted. He would have hummed and hawed at God's commandments. He, He would have avoided doing what God was telling him to do. Dead faith would have said, obedience to God is too much for me. 
It's too much right now. Not at this time, Lord. Maybe later when Isaac already has a child or children, then I can kill Isaac. Maybe then I can do it, but not right now. Not now in this present circumstance in my life. It's too much. That's not how true faith behaves. That's dead faith, beloved. That's the message James is communicating to his audience. That's the point. You think you have the faith of your father Abraham, and yet you don't want to bring forth good works? You don't have good works? Look at how Abraham behaved himself. His faith was demonstrated by his works, by his choices in life. And that's how it is for all who are the spiritual children of Abraham. Now this is not to say that Abraham was a sinless man throughout his life. Abraham at times had weak faith. And, and he stumbled and fell. But the point here is this. this. There was in Abraham's life a pattern of believing God. And this pattern of believing God came to its beautiful culmination in this incredible act of trusting God. Where he would have taken the life of his only son in order to do what God was telling him to do. Abraham was justified by his works. His works were not the basis of his righteous standing before God. But his works were the infallible fruit and evidence of having and enjoying a righteous standing before God through faith alone. Who he was as a, justified, as a justified child of God was shown by the works he brought forth. It was shown to Abraham himself. And it's also shown to you and me. Right? We can look at Abraham and we can say, this man is a believer. Not simply because he says he's a believer, but I'm seeing it in the way he's living. I know him by his fruits. Abraham is one who loves much. God called him to do something, and he obeyed. That's what true faith does. And Abraham was called the friend of God. By God himself, and also by us. We can say, we can see by the way Abraham lived that Abraham is the friend of God. As Jesus says in John 15, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. That's what my friend does. Now to go back to James chapter 2 for a second, notice the language of verse 22. We have to address that language. Verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect. What does that mean? Well, the first part Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? The first part simply means that Abraham's faith exercised itself with bringing forth works. Abraham's faith exercised itself in the bringing forth of works. Abraham did not claim that a mere confession of faith was good enough for him. No, that's the talk of a dead faith. But true faith says this, let me exercise myself by bringing forth good works. And by works, Abraham's faith, we read, was made perfect. And what does that mean at the end of verse 22? Well, it means this. Abraham's faith was brought to its goal. Abraham's faith reached its full maturity. That's where our theme for this whole book is coming from. Pressing towards spiritual maturity. The maturity of faith. This is where faith 
is brought to its maturity. Faith was made perfect. And that's a significant, that's a beautiful idea. What is the purpose of true faith? What is the goal of true faith? Namely this, that we might bring forth good works to the glory of God. Think of a fruit tree, right? We're all like branches grafted into a fruit tree, Jesus Christ. What's the purpose of a fruit tree? That fruit tree may be well and alive, but, but it reaches its purpose. It reaches its goal when it starts bringing forth fruit. That's the purpose. When it starts bringing forth fruit. That's faith being made perfect. Coming to its maturity. Its, its completion. That's true of you and me, beloved. God has given us faith so that we might bring forth fruit to his glory. That's God's purpose with you and me. We are his craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He saved us that we might be a people zealous of good works to honor and glorify the gardener. That's the point James is driving home. If your faith doesn't have works... Your faith is profitless. It doesn't do anyone good. And your faith is a sham. Because God's purpose with faith is that by faith, works might be done to magnify and glorify his name. Anyone who is genuinely saved will demonstrate it in his life's behavior. Well, that's the example of Abraham when it comes to the relationship between faith and works. And Abraham is a very powerful and important example because Abraham is the father of all believers. If you are a believer, then when it comes to a life of obedience, your your life is going to reflect the life of Abraham. But now to make his point that this is true for all believers across the board, what James does next is give the example of Rahab. Abraham is not the exception here. But this is how it is for all believers. And just think of the contrast between Abraham and Rahab. Abraham is a Jew. Rahab, a Gentile. Abraham is a man. Rahab is a woman. Abraham is a good man. Rahab is a harlot or a prostitute. Abraham is a noble Chaldean. Rahab is a wretched Canaanite. Abraham is a a great leader. Rahab is a common follower. Abraham is at the top of the social order, order. Rahab is at the bottom. And yet there's no difference when it came to their faith and how that faith behaves itself. Rahab had a true faith and her faith was shown by her works. Here is Rahab living in the city of Jericho on the wall of the city as an innkeeper. Two spies from Israel swim across the river Jordan, enter into the city of Jericho to spy it out, and they find lodging at at Rahab's house. And when she heard that the authorities were coming to look for these two men, she hid these two men in the straw. And after the authorities search her house and find nothing, and after the two spies leave, and just before the two spies leave again, Rahab speaks to them these words. I know that the Lord, capital letters, Jehovah, I know that Jehovah hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when he came out of Egypt 
And what things he did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon, and Og, whom he utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For, and now here it is, the Lord, Jehovah, your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. You see, Rahab believed. She knew who Jehovah was. She had faith. She knew who God was as Jehovah, the God of his covenant people, who gives salvation. And believing in God, Rahab was also justified. She was declared righteous through faith. But now here's the point. What did she then do? How did her faith behave itself? Well, James says this, her justifying faith revealed itself when she received the messengers and then sent them out another way to protect them from the soldiers who would have killed them. Her faith was an act of faith. She gave proof of her faith, of her, of her justification by the works she did. See, it doesn't matter if you're someone like Abraham or if you're someone like Rahab. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer... This is what happens. This is how a Christian behaves himself. Oh, it's not always a perfect faith, even, even in Rahab's case, right? Her faith was, was not perfect. She spoke a lie to the soldiers, didn't she? But she believed. She believed, and, and according to her faith, and, and with what little knowledge and, and what little faith she may have had, as far as knowledge goes at least, she acted. That's the example of Rahab. Well, we're coming to the end of the sermon. There's more we could say. There's the example of verse 26. The body without the spirit of debt is dead. James gives the example of a dead body. Just as a corpse without the soul. The body without the soul is dead. So that's how it is with faith. But without works, it's dead. But we're coming to the end of the sermon, and I want to give you something to take home, right? We've had an explanation, but let's make this practical, because that is James' focus. That's his purpose. He wants these Christians to look at themselves. And as I looked at the examples of Abraham and Rahab this past week, one thing that I noticed that was similar in these two examples is this. And I think this is very important for me personally, and I think for all of us. Both Abraham and Rahab showed their faith in relatively private ways. What I mean is this. These were very personal circumstances, very weighty decisions for Abraham and Rahab personally. It wasn't that Abraham was making the decision whether he was going to go to church or not or go to Bible study or not, and, and he knew that if he didn't go, well then... It's going to be very public, right? So that other people at church might, might come to him and, and, and ask where he was. That's not the kind of activity here. Both Abraham and Rahab had to make a very personal decision to act on their faith without any peer pressure from believers around them. These were private acts. Abraham, if Abraham wanted to, he could have just pretended to offer up Isaac on the altar, just, just kind of go through the motions. He could have faked it. 
He could have really just ignored what God was calling him to do. The question may even be raised, did did Sarah herself even know what was going on in this whole episode? This is a very private matter of Abraham. Yes, it had very public consequences, right? Everyone has heard about the faith of Abraham. But in the moment, it was a very private matter. Same with Rahab. Rahab could have hid her faith. Rahab could have simply ignored the two spies and and gone on with her ordinary business. What she did was, was not a matter for the public eye. This was private. This was personal. And I think that's worth pointing out in these two examples and and making this application. A true faith is a faith that makes the choice to honor and serve the Lord and obey Him when it comes to the personal matters. Right? In my private business. In the personal affairs. Not not just when other Christians are watching over my shoulder and, and I feel that Christian peer pressure to do what I'm supposed to do. No, but when I have to make that choice in my own personal life, right? That's the example here. Am I going to honor God or not? And the question for us, the question for the the recipients of this letter is this. Do I see that in myself? That's really the whole letter with, with one thing after another. Do I see that in myself? Regardless of the thoughts of anyone else, what do I want? Do I want to obey God? Am I obeying God? Am I choosing His will? Am I loving much? Because I know my justification, that I've been forgiven much. You see, those are the works that swell up from your inmost being. That's... That's what's rooted in the heart, a believing heart. These are the works that are the demonstration to you, to others also, to God, of a true living faith. I think that's very striking. Now I know. Now I know, God says, that you love me or that... I think that's the language, that you love me. I'm the friend of God. God's looking. Am I showing him? Am I showing myself? Do I, do I see that myself? This is living faith. May God give us that faith. Strengthen us in that faith more and more. Because... He is the God of our salvation who has freely forgiven us. This is what is right and this is what is joyful. That's what true faith says. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for this whole letter. We have need for all kinds of instruction, for comfort and encouragement, for admonition and rebuke. And now also for this, to consider what true faith is and, and to show what thou dost mean to us and where our heart is. And so as the, as the psalmist says, Lord, search us and try us. See if there be any evil way in us 
try our inmost heart and continue to lead us, Lord, in the way everlasting. Bless this preaching to that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.